This morning is from the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning in the 37th verse. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked Him to dine with Him, so He went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that He did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not He who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture that we read with Blake just a few minutes ago from Luke chapter 11. If you're visiting with us for a year and Seven months, we have been in a study in the gospel according to Luke, taking uh, verse by verse, episode by episode, scene by scene. We're in chapter 11, uh, and the words before us this morning are extremely hard-hitting words, and Jesus meant them to be that, not only in that scene in which he was found that day, but in this scene this morning, any message that would be preached in this passage uh, that is not bold, that is not confrontational, especially inside the church, is one that is not being faithful to this passage. Uh, before we look at uh, Luke 11, 37 through 54, as Jesus has dinner with the Pharisees, before we look at that, let's pray. And ask the Father who is here with us this morning in his spirit. Let's ask him to teach us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we treasure this time when we can pray together as a church family. When we can pray as priests for each other. All of us indeed are priests. You've taught us that. 
You've called us to be prophets, to take your word to the world around us, but you've taught us also to be priests and come into your presence praying for the world around us, bringing the world around us to you. Our Father, we thank you for how you have answered our prayers. All over this sanctuary, there are testimonies to how you have blessed and answered the prayers of your priests here at Christ Presbyterian. Our Father, we continue to pray for Priscilla Turner and Janet Sartell uh, in uh, this battle that's being waged with disease in their bodies. Our Father, as we've prayed week after week, you have very wonderfully answered those prayers concerning those two ladies. How you have blessed. Our Father, we thank you for your grace week after week after week. We pray again that you would heal them. But most of all, we pray that you would give them strength for these days. Our Father, you have already an answer to prayer. Defied what medicine would say about them. We thank you for how you have preserved and kept them physically. We continue to pray that you would heal them. We continue to pray, Father, that you would give them an emotional, physical, and spiritual strength that can only come from you. That's our prayer. We pray for others in this congregation this morning who are ailing physically or having uh, some operation or procedure. We pray that you would give them grace and that, Father, you would bring healing in those situations, uh, whether it be an immediate healing or be it through uh, medical procedures. Father, all these things in your hand, we don't have health unless you give it to us. We pray for Billy Griggs. We pray for Jim Bennington that you would give them strength. Our Father, we continue to pray for the farmers of Fayette County. We pray that you would bless them in their labors, bless them in their plowing, their planting. We pray that in this season, you would provide the water that is needed provide the climate that is needed. We pray that there would be a great harvest this fall. For these things are in your hand. Father, we pray for our homes, for our marriages. We pray that, Father, where our marriages are hurting, that you would bring healing. That where husbands need to repent, there would be repentance. Where wives need to repent, there would be repentance. We pray that you would build strong families in this congregation. Bless the children, Father, of this congregation, the young people of this congregation. We pray, our Father, that in this day of cultural chaos, that you would give our children stability. Our Father, we pray that you would protect them from the evil one, protect them from disease, from life-altering illness. Cause our children to be strong emotionally, to be strong physically, 
to be strong spiritually. Now, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would do what John Sartell can't do. We pray that you would speak to us in a way that would change us, would affect us right to the core of our being. Maybe some of us for the first time. When we walk away from here in a few minutes, may we know that you have spoken. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Genuine faith or a grand facade? When Jesus arrived on the scene in the first century in Israel, he found a super religious group who believed they were following God's word and God's will and following it exactly and following it to the letter and following it in an exemplary way. They were known as Pharisees. They were the strongest Jewish religious party in Israel. They dominated the religious scene and political scene in Israel in Jesus' day. As he made claims to be Messiah and the Son of God, the long-awaited one, they did not believe he was Messiah. They did not believe his claims. They did not believe especially his claims of deity. We've seen that over and over again in our study of Luke. However, it is not only that they did not believe him. As they confronted Jesus about his identity, you can't miss this. He confronted them. That's what was happening in this passage. He confronted them about their complete misunderstanding about sin, about salvation, about God's grace. In the passage before us, it is Jesus taking the Pharisees to task with their malpractice of the biblical faith. Time and time again, we've seen them attack him. This time, he took them to task. Folks, we desperately need to pay attention. Maybe as you heard this, you say, what's here for me? This is the 21st century. Is this really going to have anything to do with my week? We desperately need to pay attention to what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees in this passage. Because in evangelical Christianity, we will always be tempted to become like Pharisees in the practice of our biblical faith. In fact, I think that is probably the greatest temptation for the Christian church, especially the conservative Christian Bible-believing church. I think it will be always our greatest temptation to become like the Pharisees. So what did Jesus see in the Pharisees that was so glaringly wrong. These men were known as the religious people in their day. What could be so wrong? I want you to first see that the Pharisees practiced the faith externally with no internal reality. Look at verse 37. When Jesus finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at table. But the Pharisee noticing that Jesus did not first wash before the meal, was surprised. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made 
the outside make the inside also. Give us what is inside the dish to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. These Pharisees were exacting. I can't emphasize that enough. Exacting in the practice of the biblical faith. They had developed laws that they were thought in keeping with Scripture, literally thousands of laws. These laws stress being symbolically clean from the contamination of the world around them. Therefore, they had many symbolic spiritual washings and spiritual baths in their everyday lives. We see this in this passage. Jesus had been invited to the Pharisees' house to eat. The Pharisees and his friends, as they entered the house, ceremoniously. Now, listen to me. This is not about washing your hands before you eat. That's not what this is. I used to sit at the table. I didn't want to go. I'd come in from outside and mother would walk in and she could look at me. Whether she could see my hands, John, go wash your hands. She knew I hadn't been to wash my hands. That's not what this is. Jesus is not being a bad boy here. And his hands were dirty. There were, they, they had a washing. When they came in from the world, whether it was to eat or not, when they came in from the outside world, when they came from town, when they came from the marketplace, they would ceremoniously wash their hands to wipe off, to wash off the contamination from the world. That's what this was about. Each person, and it had to be just in a certain way, each person had to use at least enough water to fill one and a half eggshells. Don't ask me what eggshells had to do with it. I don't know. The water had to be poured from the fingers up to the wrist. And when they were rinsed, it, the water had to be poured from the wrist down to the fingers. A single detail could not be omitted. Jesus watched these Pharisees, and there were a number of Pharisees at dinner that day, and he watched them all do this, and he did not. He did not. It just, they could all see it. He purposely left off washing his hands. He said, this man's a prophet? And he comes in from the contamination of the world and does not ceremoniously wash it off? They had turned their faith into a list of external rules to keep. Their, their, their faith had become completely a thing of external practices. They paid no attention to the heart. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, I have something to say to you. I didn't wash my hands. Because you have made all these laws about external behavior. And it has nothing to do. You're dirty on the inside is, the, is what's the matter. This was not new. God said Israel had been guilty of the same thing for, for centuries in Isaiah 29, 13, if you look on your scripture sheet, the Lord says, these people came near to me with their mouth 
and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, there was external action, but it had no internal reality. It was all image. It was just a grand facade. Remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus in the third chapter of John? What was he? He was a Pharisee. And what did Jesus tell him? What was the great message that Jesus told him? Here was Nicodemus dressed to the nines spiritually. His clothes shouted that he was a religious man, a devout man. His actions all shouted that he was a most religious man. And Jesus looked at him and said, you must be born again. Your your problem, Nicodemus, is that you've got all this external stuff going on, all this outward reformation, but there is no internal transformation. This was not something that was a New Testament doctrine that came with Jesus. Remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus? Are you a prophet in Israel? Are you a prophet in Israel? You're a teacher in Israel, and you don't know these things? How could he say that? In Deuteronomy 36, look on your scripture sheet, chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts. He will change your inside so that you will love him with all your heart, with all your soul. In Ezekiel 11, and we could read other passages, Ezekiel 11, 19. I will give them a new heart. I will put a new spirit within them. I will renew, remove from them the heart of stone, and give them a heart of flesh. There's a biblical principle here. The inside shapes what is outside. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus teaches this. Scripture teaches this from Genesis to Revelation. It's what is inside of us that transforms the outside. It's not that we're transformed from the outside in. That never happens. It can't happen. Christianity is not an an outward moral reformation. I grew up thinking that in my own mind. I've just got to be a good boy. I've just got to do what's good and right. That's not Christianity. It's not what the scripture teaches. It teaches that a supernatural inward transformation determines the outside. It's the inside that determines that. Abraham Lincoln, when he was president, uh, had a person very close to him that was advising him about people he should have on his cabinet. He suggested this certain individual, and Lincoln refused to make that individual that was recommended, he refused to put him on his cabinet. And so his counselor asked him, said, why are you refusing this man? (laughs) And President Lincoln said, I don't like his face. And the man said, What's his face got to do with it? The poor man isn't responsible for his face. And Lincoln brilliantly responded, every man over 40 is responsible for his face. What was Lincoln saying? What is in the heart will shape the external. What is in the heart will shape a person's face. You've seen this. You'll see it this week. You'll see it this week and remember, hey, John talked about that on Sunday morning. Somebody that is just an angry person, filled with anger in their heart. You know it. Why? They always have this 
chronic anger reflected in their face. If a person is bitter in their heart and they've got a chronic bitterness in their heart, it will show on their face. You know that. Some of us need to go home and look at our own faces in the mirror. We might learn something. That is what Jesus is saying. And he said in verse 41, but give what is inside the dish to the poor and everything will be clean for you. You need to know that uh, to the poor, is, is that was not in the original. That, that's not in the original. It's something that some scribe added along the way. Uh, he, he was saying, here, give the wickedness of your heart away. Do something about the inside. Deal with the inside. So the question before the house this morning is, how do you change inside? Well, I've got encouraging news for you. It's quite impossible. Our hearts can only be changed by the Holy Spirit and God's word. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You've got to be first born again. So the first answer is, it's something that God is a transformation that transformation this inner hearts wrought by the Holy Spirit. But there's a second answer. Even when we've been changed by the Holy Spirit, even when we've been born again, there's an ever-present temptation to drift back to an external emphasis. And we prayed about that this morning in our, in our invocation. Look at it. Look at the invocation. He said, well, or, or in our prayer, we said, Yet we cannot come to you without our ever-present inclination to sin. Our hymns, at best, are stained with indifference. Our prayers in their highest form are stained with insincerity. Well, are we just pretending then? There's this, there's this inclination to build a facade, to go through the ceremony, and pretend that it's not stained with sin, pretend that everything is genuine. You, you see, we can't, we can't sing a hymn that's not stained with insincerity. We can't say a prayer that's not stained with insincerity. That's impossible. Now, when the Lord returns and we lose uh, the, the, what is remaining in us is a sin nature, we, we lose our remaining sin nature, that will change. But not until then. I keep a poem where I can see it. Often, it was written by Jules Pfeiffer, the the uh, cartoonist, classical cartoonist and satirist. Uh, he wrote, uh, or he wrote and he drew for the Village Voice, and he wrote a poem uh, that first appeared in the Village Voice. Let me read it to you. He was saying the same thing that that we all have facades. We we all have this facade we put up. He said, he wrote, I felt like a fraud. That's F-R-A-U-D. I felt like a fraud. So I learned to fly an airplane. At 50,000 feet, I thought, a fraud is flying an airplane. So I crossed the Atlantic in a rowboat docked at Shabor. And I thought, a fraud has crossed the Atlantic in a rowboat. So I took a space shot to the moon. On the way home, I thought, a fraud has circled the moon. 
So I took a full-page ad in the newspaper, and I confessed to the world that I was a fraud. I read the ad, and I thought, a fraud is pretending to be honest. It's in all of us, isn't it? We have that. So what do you do with that? Well, if you haven't been born again, if you haven't been transformed, lay aside all the pretension. Lay aside the facade. Don't pretend like you don't need Jesus. Lay it all aside. Come to Jesus. Come to God empty-handed and say, Father, I'm helpless. Change my heart. Kneel before him and ask him to change your heart. Do that at this point. Do that where you are. I've had people walk out of a service. One young man uh, walked out of a service. It was on an Easter Sunday morning. And his wife asked him, said, something happened. What's wrong? And he said, I'm a changed man. He said, God changed my life. Where you are, you, can, you don't have to walk down an aisle. We don't have to sing just as I am. Right where you are. Ask the Father to change your heart. But if, if your heart has been changed, what do you do? What do you do? You're continually taking off the mask. With every sin, there's a temptation to cover it up, to pretend righteousness. There's a, there's a temptation to, to, to build a facade that tells the world that you're really not a sinner. It's like, it's like we confess that we've sinned and we come to Christ and ask Him to forgive us but then for our children's sake and the world around us, we say, see, I'm not a sinner. People, we can't live without our sin. I can't ever come to God. Ever, ever, ever. No man ever, besides Jesus, no man ever came to God in prayer without his sin. His sin was right there in the middle of his prayer. It's a continual effort in your life and the power of the Holy Spirit to confess that reality. Strip away the facade. Take off the mask. The Pharisees practice the face externally with no internal reality. Secondly, the Pharisees practiced the faith by tithing, but did not have the love of God as a motivation. Look at verse 42. This is amazing. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give a country. A lot of us sitting here have gardens. I want to ask you a question. Do you tithe out of your garden? I've never known anyone that tithed out. Of, I've never tithed out of anything I raised. If you take it a 10% of what you raised and gave, give it to the Lord. He's saying to the Pharisees, you even tithe out of your herb. He didn't say just gardens. Out of your herb garden. You tithe. I mean, folks, that's serious. But their giving meant nothing. Why? Because there was no love of God. There was no love behind it. One, listen, one cannot understand biblical obedience. One cannot understand godly gospel obedience 
unless one understands what Jesus is saying in Matthew 22:37 that the love of God and the love of neighbor has to be absolutely at the center of our actions. Look at verse 37 in Luke in Matthew 22. Jesus has been asked, "What is the great commandment?" Jesus replied, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind." This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But look at verse 40. All the law, all the law, every law, and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything depends that our actions are motivated by the love of God and love of neighbor. We came to worship this morning. Perhaps as you came in the door if I'd ask you, why did you come to worship this morning? I came obeying God. I came being trying to be obedient to the law of God. You know, our attendance, our worship here means nothing. It means absolutely nothing apart from our love of God. If we're just going through the motions, if we're not motivated in our worship by the love of God, it means nothing. Paul said it this way. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to be fl- to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Just think, what would you do? What, you know, Just think, if you went home today and you sold your house and you sold your car, you sold, you, you, you de-invested you know, all your money, you cashed out and you took it all and you gave it to the poor, what would you think? You'd say, man, that is something. Somebody did that, you would say, man. That is something. And Paul said, you're meaningless unless it's done because you love God and you love your neighbor. Imagine a person giving his life for Christ. Christ said it means nothing unless it's done in love. I like the mystical story told by the book and movie, The Legend of Bagger Vance. It's a story of a, a local golfer in Savannah, a legend there named Juna. And in the book, in the movie, he plays a three-man tournament with Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen. The story centers around Juna and his mystical spiritual caddy, Bagger Vance. On the last hole of the tournament, the 72nd hole, the match is just tight. It's tied. And Juna's ball in the fairway appears to move. And if a ball moves like that, you must give yourself a stroke penalty. Jones and Hagen both try to convince Juna that it really didn't move. That he just imagined they don't want to win the match that way and They don't want him to lose it that way. But Juna gives himself the penalty anyway. And as you watch it, and if if you really understand, you understand that Juna, it was not hard for him to give himself the stroke penalty. Why? It wasn't hard at all. Because he loved golf. He just loved it. He loved the game. And the rules were part of it. The Pharisees were exactly opposite of Judah. They were trying to keep all these rules they had made. 
And there was no love. There was no love of God. There was no love of the neighbor. No love of orphans. No love of widows. No love of the poor. It was all facade. The Pharisees practiced faith eternally. And they had no internal reality. That's why Jesus had an issue with them. When uh, they, 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 pra- they practiced the faith by tithing, but did not have his love. They proudly practice the faith for others to see. Look at verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. They wore their obedience like a badge. Look at me. And they dressed it. I mean, they, they, there was a reason for the hats they wore. There was a religious reading for the robes they wore, what was on the bottom of their robes. They were saying, look at us, we're superior. We're superior in our theology. We're superior in our obedience. We're superior in every way when it comes to religion. Everything about them told you how obedient they were. That that happens in in our lives, in the life of Christ. It happens in my life every day. We're plagued with this kind of Phariseeism. We, we Presbyterians sometimes talk as if we're more erudite than the Baptist. We talk as if we're more biblical and down to earth than the Episcopalians. We love the intellectualism of the Reformed faith. This can be so subtle. Some of us will walk out this morning and completely miss this. You'll say, I thank God I'm not like that Pharisee. Now, we must be careful here. Right theology is superior to wrong theology. Obedience is superior to disobedience. Humility does not demand that we stop striving for excellence. However, we must constantly remember this ever-present sin. We did not find God. He found us. You can't brag about finding God. He found us. We did not find his theology. His theology was revealed to us. What did he say to Peter? Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus didn't say, wait to go, Peter. You are so brilliant. I can't believe you're a theologian. Peter, you know what he said? Peter, bless your heart. The Father in heaven revealed this to you. Anyone who is proud of his obedience knows little of the real depth of disobedience in his life. It's ridiculous. You look at a person's life, you look at a Christian's life, and he's wearing this like a badge, like, look at me, I've got it all together. I'm just, I'm obedient. That was Nicodemus. That was a Pharisee. I thought about it this morning, and I started laughing. You know, sitting at my desk at 8.30 in the morning, and it's a Sunday morning, I'm going to come preach to you. And I've already, at 8.30, sinned enough to send my soul to hell forever. It should sober us. I love the statement. We're only beggars. Christians are only beggars telling other beggars where we found bread. That's all we are. James Abbott Whistler. He was... The painter, he was, you know, obviously he's the one who painted Whistler's mother. Lived in London. He became very, very, very arrogant 
in his fame and in his talent. He was walking with a friend in London one day and his friend said, you know, James, it's a good thing we can't see ourselves as others see us. Whistler completely misunderstood his friend's intent. And he said, yes, that's true. I know in my case, I would become quite conceited if I saw myself as others saw me. We need to know that. Let me ask you this. Does the world around you know you for your self-righteousness? Or do they know you as a sinner who is just constantly repenting? Which is it? They know you as a sinner that keeps coming to the cross? The Pharisees practice the faith externally with no internal reality. The Pharisees practiced the faith by tithing but did not have any love. The Pharisees proudly practiced the faith for others to see. Finally, this is most important and it's most dreadful. They practiced in their faith, they practiced a moral proliferation yet accomplished a sinful contamination. The Pharisees, in their effort to promote a moral, to to promote morality. In reality, they participated in a sinful condemnation. Where do you con, uh, contamination? Where do you see that? Look at verse forty-four. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which men walk over without knowing it. That is a powerful statement. You see, the Pharisees, and he had talked about them being open graves, right? Already, he had called them graves because they were all. Uh, had white marble on that, like like the tombstones that had white marble on the outside, but they rotting flesh on the inside. He said, that's what the Pharisees are. You're all cleaned up on the outside and you're filthy on the inside. Well, now he comes down and said, you're like unmarked graves. What is he saying? You see, if a Pharisee walked over a grave or came near a grave or touched a grave, they became spiritually contaminated. They became unclean. Jesus said, you are full of evil on the inside. You're full of pretense. You're full of hypocrisy. You're full of self-righteousness on the inside so that you contaminate the people that you actually, the people that come in contact with you. They're touching dead bodies. If I come in contact with a Pharisee, I'm touching a dead body. That's what Jesus was saying. That was the highest insult that could be given to a Pharisee. They were trying to spread their superior morality, and Jesus said they were spreading corruption instead. People, this is why I keep, when I talk about how The church has wandered from the cardinal doctrines of the faith. I talk about my seminary training where my professors didn't believe in uh, the the inerrancy of Scripture. They didn't believe in the incarnation. They didn't believe in the miracles of Jesus. didn't believe in all this. That's why this is so dangerous. What do we say? People say, we hear out in the world all the time. doesn't matter where you go to church. You're just going to church. That's the important thing. Don't ever say that. Please don't say that. And if you do say it, please don't tell them you come to Christ for church or that you even know John Sartell. 
It's the most hideous thing you can say. The, this world is full of people. The United States is full of people. Tennessee is full of people who are sitting in church this morning and they don't even have any idea of the gospel and they've never heard the gospel. And you can sit in their church they're attending for 50 years and never hear the gospel. Jan and I had a young lady became a friend in our, our first ministry in, in the mountains of Virginia. And she had come home from she had come home from college, uh, and for some strange reason started attending the the church. God's strange problem started attending the church where I served, and she had grown up in a local church. And when she came to to our church, she said, I've never heard anything like this in my life. And she'd grown she'd grown up there. She's going to Bible school. Uh, and and uh, had all through elementary school, all through high school, went to college, ditched the church, ditched the faith of her parents, and then she ended up coming to this church where I was, and she and she said, "I've never heard anything like this." I said, "Well, what did you hear?" Her name was Ann, and Ann said, "My parents patted me on the head, my church patted me on the head, and said, just be a good girl.'" Just be a good girl. And she, and she did. She actually said, I've never heard that you're a beggar, that you're going to go to God and beg for mercy and grace. Her church and her so-called religious parents had contaminated her. People, this is serious. I told you, this is hard hitting. This is why we have elders to keep an eye on this pulpit. This is why we have deacons to guard this pulpit, to guard what's being preached, guard this church and what we're saying. Because our salvation depends on it, and the people that hear us, their salvation depends on it. Let's close with this. In verse 52, he says, Woe to you experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. The key to real knowledge you've taken away. You yourselves have not entered, and, you, and you've entered those who are entering. All right, you have just won a huge, you, you've inherited a ton of money. I mean more money than you've ever imagined. And you decided to throw a great, gigantic party. Party for Christ Presbyterian Church, party for your neighbors, party for everybody. You have 300 guests invited, and you serve the best filet mignon. You serve shrimp and lobster and lamb. I mean, the finest wines. This is just an awesome, awesome party. But you notice in the middle of the party that some of, some of your guests seem perplexed and frustrated. And so you begin to wonder to say, what, what's wrong here? And you go to the entrance, and you find that there's people at the entrance that were invited to the party and they're charging others that were invited to the party $200 a plate just to get in. You would be ticked. What in the world are you doing? That's why Jesus was so very angry with the Pharisees. 
He had prepared from eternity a lavish banquet and paid dearly for everyone to come to the banquet. Yet he found the Pharisees at the door telling them that it was not free, that it was not grace. And they had to pay. People, be careful in permitting yourself to build that facade. Because not only is it not salvation, it is contamination. You'll contaminate your children. You'll contaminate your neighbors. Our closing hymn. It's a hymn that I have not sung for years and years and years. Lord, I, I want to be a Christian in my heart.